The following was recorded by John Loth and is intended for educational purposes. This recording is not to be sold or distributed for sale. If you wish to support the work and publishing of these recordings, please visit the John Loth Patreon page. If you come across these recordings anywhere else without my expressed support and find that they are requesting donations for presenting this work to you, you will not be supporting the creator by doing so. This is just a friendly warning to anyone who may fall prey to predatory practices I have come across recently. The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 4 Part 3 The Dilemma of the One Alternative Russia's only real geostrategic option the option that could give Russia a realistic international role and also maximize the opportunity of transforming and socially modernizing itself is Europe. And not just any Europe, but the transatlantic Europe of the enlarging EU and NATO. Such a Europe is taking shape, as we have seen in Chapter 3, and it is also likely to remain linked closely to America. That is the Europe to which Russia will have to relate if it is to avoid dangerous geopolitical isolation. For America, Russia is much too weak to be a partner, but still too strong to be simply its patient. It is more likely to become a problem unless America fosters a setting that helps to convince the Russians that the best choice for their country is an increasingly organic connection with a transatlantic Europe. Although a long-term Russo-Chinese and Russo-Iranian strategic alliance is not likely, it is obviously important for America to avoid policies that could distract Russia from making the needed geopolitical choice. To the extent possible, American relations with China and Iran should therefore be formulated with their impact on Russian geopolitical calculations also kept in mind. Perpetuating illusions regarding grand geostrategic options can only delay the historic choice that Russia must make in order to bring to an end its deep malaise. Only a Russia that is willing to accept the new realities of Europe, both economic and geopolitical, will be able to benefit, internally, from the enlarging scope of transatlantic European cooperation in commerce, communications, investment, and education. Russia's participation in the Council of Europe is thus a step very much in the right direction. It is a foretaste of further institutional links between the new Russia and the growing Europe. It also implies that if Russia pursues this path, it will have no choice other than eventually to emulate the course chosen by post-Ottoman Turkey. When it decided to shed its imperial ambitions and embarked very deliberately on the road of modernization, Europeanization, and democratization. No other option can offer Russia the benefits that a modern, rich, and democratic Europe linked to America can. Europe and America are not a threat to a Russia that is a non-expansive national and democratic state. They have no territorial designs on Russia, which China someday might have, nor do they share an insecure and potentially violent frontier which is certainly the case with Russia's ethnically and territorially unclear border with the Muslim nations to the south. On the contrary, for Europe as well as for America, a national and democratic Russia is a geopolitically desirable entity, a source of stability in the volatile Eurasian complex. 
Russia consequently faces the dilemma that the choice in favor of Europe and America, in order for it to yield tangible benefits, requires, first of all, a clear-cut abjuration of the imperial past, and, second, no to giversation regarding the enlarging Europe's political and security links with America. The first requirement means accommodation to the geopolitical pluralism that has come to prevail in the space of the former Soviet Union. Such accommodation does not exclude economic cooperation, rather on the model of the old European free trade area, but it cannot include limits on the political sovereignty of the new states, for the simple reason that they do not wish it. Most important in that respect is the need for clear and unambiguous acceptance by Russia of Ukraine's separate existence, of its borders, and of its distinctive national identity. The second requirement may be even more difficult to swallow. A truly cooperative relationship with the transatlantic community cannot be based on the notion that those democratic states of Europe that wish to be part of it can be excluded because of a Russian say-so. The expansion of that community need not be rushed, and it certainly should not be promoted on an anti-Russian theme, but neither can it nor should it be halted by a political fiat that itself reflects an antiquated notion of European security relations. An expanding and democratic Europe has to be an open-ended historical process, not subject to politically arbitrary geographic limits. For many Russians, the dilemma of the one alternative may at first, and for some time to come, be too difficult to resolve. It will require an enormous act of political will, and perhaps also an outstanding leader, capable of making the choice and articulating the vision of a democratic, national, truly modern and European Russia. That may not happen for some time. Overcoming the post-communist and post-imperial crisis will require not only more time than is the case with the post-communist transformation of Central Europe, but also the emergence of a far-sighted and stable political leadership. No Russian Ataturk is now in sight. Nonetheless, Russians will eventually have to come to recognize that Russia's national redefinition is not an act of capitulation, but one of liberation. They will have to accept that what Yeltsin said in Kiev in 1990 about a non-imperial future for Russia was absolutely on the mark and a genuinely non-imperial Russia will still be a great power, spanning Eurasia, the world's largest territorial unit by far. In any case, a redefinition of what is Russia and where is Russia will probably occur only by stages, and it will require a wise and firm Western posture. America and Europe will have to help. They should offer Russia not only a special treaty or charter with NATO, but they should also begin the process of exploring, with Russia, the shaping of an eventual transcontinental system of security and cooperation that goes considerably beyond the loose structure of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE. And if Russia consolidates its internal democratic institutions and makes tangible progress in free market-based economic development, its ever closer association with NATO and the EU should not be ruled out. At the same time, it is equally important for the West, especially for America, to pursue policies that perpetuate the dilemma of the one alternative for Russia.
The political and economic stabilization of the new post-Soviet states is a major factor in necessitating Russia's historical redefinition. Hence, support for the new post-Soviet states, for geopolitical pluralism in the space of the former Soviet empire, has to be an integral part of a policy designed to induce Russia to exercise, unambiguously, its European option. Among these states, three are geopolitically especially important. Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, and Ukraine. An independent Azerbaijan can serve as a corridor for Western access to the energy-rich Caspian Sea Basin and Central Asia. Conversely, a subdued Azerbaijan would mean that Central Asia can be sealed off from the outside world and thus rendered politically vulnerable to Russian pressures for reintegration. Uzbekistan, nationally the most vital and the most populous of the Central Asian states, represents a major obstacle to any renewed Russian control over the region. Its independence is critical to the survival of the other Central Asian states, and it is the least vulnerable to Russian pressures. Most important, however, is Ukraine. As the EU and NATO expand, Ukraine will eventually be in the position to choose whether it wishes to be part of either organization. It is likely that, in order to reinforce its separate status, Ukraine will wish to join both, once they border upon it and once its own internal transformation begins to qualify it for membership. Although that will take time, it is not too early for the West while further enhancing its economic and security ties with Kiev, to begin pointing to the decade 2005 to 2015 as a reasonable time frame for the initiation of Ukraine's progressive inclusion, thereby reducing the risk that the Ukrainians may fear that Europe's expansion will halt on the Polish-Ukrainian border. Russia, despite its protestations, is likely to acquiesce in the expansion of NATO in 1999 to include several Central European countries, because the cultural and social gap between Russia and Central Europe has widened so much since the fall of communism. By contrast, Russia will find it incomparably harder to acquiesce in Ukraine's ascension to NATO, for to do so would be to acknowledge that Ukraine's destiny is no longer organically linked to Russia's. Yet, if Ukraine is to survive as an independent state, it will have to become part of Central Europe rather than Eurasia, and if it is to be part of Central Europe, then it will have to partake fully of Central Europe's links to NATO and the European Union. Russia's acceptance of these links would then define Russia's own decision to be also truly part of Europe. Russia's refusal would be tantamount to the rejection of Europe in favor of a solitary Eurasian identity and existence. The key point to bear in mind is that Russia cannot be in Europe without Ukraine also being in Europe, whereas Ukraine can be in Europe without Russia being in Europe. Assuming that Russia decides to cast its lot with Europe, it follows that ultimately it is in Russia's own interest that Ukraine be included in the expanding European structures. Indeed, Ukraine's relationship to Europe could be the turning point for Russia itself. But that also means that the defining moment for Russia's relationship to Europe is still some time off. Defining in the sense that Ukraine's choice in favor of Europe will bring to a head Russia's decision regarding the next phase of its history, either to be part of Europe as well, or to become a Eurasian outcast, neither truly Europe nor Asia, 
and mired in its near-abroad conflicts. It is to be hoped that a cooperative relationship between an enlarging Europe and Russia can move from formal bilateral links to more organic and binding economic, political, and security ties. In that manner, in the course of the first two decades of the next century, Russia could increasingly become an integral part of a Europe that embraces not only Ukraine, but reaches to the Urals and even beyond. An association, or even some form of membership for Russia in the European and transatlantic structures, would in turn open the doors to the inclusion of the three Caucasian countries, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, that so desperately aspire to a European connection. One cannot predict how fast that process can move, but one thing is certain. It will move faster if a geopolitical context is shaped that propels Russia in that direction, while foreclosing other temptations. And the faster Russia moves towards Europe, the sooner the black hole of Eurasia will be filled by a society that is increasingly modern and democratic. Indeed, for Russia, the dilemma of the one alternative is no longer a matter of making a geopolitical choice, but of facing up to the imperatives of survival.